Hi, it's so good to be here with you today. I'm so happy to be here. It's all set up for Pops, and you have to let me do this because I've always wanted to be Lewis. Okay, got it out of my system. (laughs) Uh, I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm honored to be a part of the teaching team. More honored to talk about Jesus. What a privilege. I love it. Today we're going to look at religion that is real. And at first I want to steer away from that word religion because we really uh, don't like that. We steer away from that word. We like to tell people it's all about a relationship. It's not about religion. But the true meaning of religion was all about a relationship with God. It was between God and his creation, us. Real religion was created by God. We are born to be a people that pursue him. He created us as spiritual creatures. So when I looked up religion in the dictionary, this is what I found. Belief in and reverence for a supernatural power recognized as the creator and ruler of the universe. So somewhere along the line, man has redefined what religion is and substituted those words, belief in and reverence for traditions and rules, minimizing our spiritual life to a list of do's and don'ts. Not what God had in mind. Man has taken something that is all about God and made it all about us. Uh, Ted and I were engaged, and I was from Illinois, and I was coming down to kind of get to know his family, and they were having a family reunion, and it was a camp out, and it was summertime. (laughs) I shared a tent with Ted's mom and his grandmother and his sister, and so this is an interesting way to get to know your in-laws. Camping in the summer, in a tent, in Texas, with a group of strangers that you don't know. It ended up being a great time. But one of the really strange things that did happen was Sunday morning, we got up and the relatives got together and they came to Ted and said, would you just lead um, like a little worship service? And he was getting ready to do that, and we were all kind of gathering the crowd together, except this one relative that none of us knew very well began to say, no, 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 Ted can't lead us in worship because he's not a member of the right denomination. And guess what? It was her denomination. Who would have thought? And so we kind of, you know, people kind of pushed back on her a little bit. She was so adamant and so offended that we just stopped the worship service, before it even began. One woman stopped worship of God because she made it all about a denomination and not about belief. I wonder how many Christians stop true worship because they have turned religion into something else. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus also finds himself at a reunion. It's actually a similar situation than the one I was at. Remember in chapter 3, that council comes from Jerusalem, and they've been hearing about Jesus, so they want to get close to him, and 
And uh, they end up investigating him and calling him Beelzebub. Remember that? Well, here they come back. We're back. They're back for a reunion of ill intent. Once again, they are so disturbed, not excited, disturbed about the healings and the teachings and the authority that surrounds Jesus Christ. So they are going back to try to catch him in anything that could stop his ministry. In chapter 7, we see the rejection that Jesus is facing from his own people, and it's a prelude to his ministry to the Gentile nation. In this chapter, um, he will encounter all these different kinds of people, and when we look at the people, we witness the gap between true spirituality, God's religion, and false spirituality, man-made religion. It's right here in this chapter. The Jewish leaders, they had made religion all about themselves, and they weren't even aware of it. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now, you can tell right here that Mark is writing mostly to Gentile Romans because he feels the need to explain in detail this idea of tradition and the washings because they wouldn't have understand it, understood it. This was a tradition of the elders. And what that meant is they took the Word of God and they just tried to meticulously make the laws um, even harder. They just added and added to the laws of God, thinking we're making them better. In reality, they were weakening the true intent of God's laws. They were distorting the words of God. They were contradicting what God was trying to accomplish in his law. These were man's rules mixed with God's laws to the point that they began to hold up even above God's words themselves, their written rules. It was a system of rituals without reality, meaning the reality of the intent of God in the law was lost to them. Real religion was buried beneath minute rules of tradition. And they were designed to relegate every aspect of a Jew's life. And so that way they were passed down from generation to generation to generation. And in the third century A.D., they took this collection of their teachings and they put it as a foundation for a document that would become known as the Talmud, The Talmud in the Jewish faith today is still their source of traditional Jewish faith. 
In this case, the oral tradition involved washing your hands in a very particular way. Now, when he says their hands were unclean, he doesn't mean dirty. They mean defiled. They mean unholy because um, they didn't wash them according to the tradition of the elders. And that would involve washing their hands and up to their arms and up to their elbows in this particular ornate fashion. If they had come from the marketplace where they might have rubbed elbows with some Gentiles, they actually had to go wash their entire body. This was what they had made of the laws of God. And we can just read that and think, okay, but I just want to step back and look at this scene again. You have this man named Jesus. There's never been anybody like him before. And he's Jewish, and he's a God follower. And everywhere he goes, people follow him because he's a gifted teacher in the synagogue. People are amazed by that. They are amazed at his power and authority. People are being healed, blind, seeing, deaf, hearing, the lame, walking, demons acknowledging him, being exercised by him, God being glorified through him. So in Jerusalem, we see the religious teachers and leaders and Pharisees get together, get a group, go to this man, and it tells us in verse 1 that they gathered around Jesus. And here's what I'm sure they started discussing. What is God doing? Wow. Tell us about it. Hey, what do you think about this scripture? Hey, let's pray together. Let's all get together and rejoice and share our faith. Is this what was happening? No. Because they had no intention of joining in the celebration why? Because this is what man-made religion does. It stops true fellowship. Man-made religion sizes each other up according to a list of do's and don'ts, and true fellowship cannot happen. And we may look at different faiths and different religions and see them, and they're all together, and they may even be holding the same list of do's and don'ts, and they say they're um, fellowshipping together, it is not true fellowship. True fellowship happens when we look upward at God. Man-made religion looks at each other and judges each other by their behavior. Man-made religion says, Lord, look at what we've done for you. Never raising their eyes and saying, God, this is what you've done for us. True fellowship happens when we are depending on God. Man-made religion depends on rules. True fellowship happens when we display the mercies of God to each other. Man-made religion leads to criticism and judgment of each other, like these Jewish leaders here. They came all the way from Jerusalem, not a short journey. They're standing next to the Son of God. And all they can see are unwashed hands. That's their list of do's and don'ts. They couldn't see the greatest movement of redemption that ever hit this planet and ever will. A movement that was cleansing the hearts and the souls and the bodies of people. Rather than joining with Jesus in a common faith, they were separated by the suspicions and the doubts that 
a self-righteous, legalistic religion brings with it. So, since they didn't know for sure how to attack Jesus, they could do it by attacking his disciples. Their concern was that Jesus was not living according to the tradition of the elders. That was their concern. Ignoring all these things, ignoring his power and authority and his teachings and the fact that he was being obedient to the true words of God, this is what happens in a legalistic religion. It stops true fellowship. It's not God's plan. Look at Romans 15 on your verse sheet. May God grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in high school, I hung out for a while with this kind of interesting church and there was some legalism going on and I was friends with a guy named Steve and Steve was this phenomenal drummer. He became a part of this church, and they said to him, you have to put down your drumsticks for life. And I can remember being with Steve some, and guess what he liked to talk about? Playing the drums. He missed playing the drums. But they had told him that was an idol in your life. So if you want to have fellowship with us, you can never play the drums again. I can remember looking at him. I, I was just guess I was too young, but I just wanted to say, Play the drums. (laughs) Play the drums for God. He gave you that gift. And he was chained and shackled by this group of people who said, you can't fellowship with us if you don't stick to our rules. That is not true fellowship. One result of the loss of true fellowship is a loss of true worship. So let's look at verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are about rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Jesus sees in the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers a fulfillment of a prophecy Isaiah gave hundreds of years earlier. And standing before them, Jesus quotes the law to the teachers of the law. This was sort of a vindication of how they weren't using the law as an authority in their life. So Jesus stands up and does it for them. He calls them hypocrites. This word originally meant back then, um, they put this word on a group of actors who would step on a stage and wear masks to play all the different characters. Jesus sees the Pharisees as those who act a false part, who pretend to be something they aren't. They're wearing the mask of God worshipers and pretend to honor something that they don't. They're holding the mask of the laws of God. But these were not important things in their life. So without a pure heart, without God's pure word, worship doesn't really happen. Look at John 4 on your verse sheet. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. True worship centers around the true word of God, but they had set that aside and allowed their own laws to take precedence above God's words. And I read how there was a time long before this when the Hebrew nation held the words of God in such high esteem that they wouldn't even write their own thoughts or reflections about the laws of God in case later generations would see their writings and begin to equate it to the laws of God or hold it above the laws of God. So we realized they were not journaling back then. Somewhere, though, they decided to add to God's words, and not only did they seem to be important to them, they became more important and neglected God's word. Boy, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. Or does it? It is still happening today. We see a variety of religions worshipped in together, and it's so heartfelt, and we want to admire it. But if it is based on what a man said or what a people group said, it is not true worship because it's not based on truth no matter how heartfelt they are. Our outward expression has to connect to an inward reality. The inward reality is we were created by God to have a relationship with him through his word, which is truth alone. Because how do you know who God is apart from his word? Anybody could decide who God is. The word of God teaches us who God is, and we can know him. Legalists lose sight of who God really is because they can't see him through all their traditions and their rules and their lists. They see God more like this and not like this. They see him shaking their finger and not drawing them near. I read part of this poem. In his blessed word I will trust day by day, which reveals him as the life, the truth, and the way. And with his holy word as my guide, from the narrow way I will never turn aside. There is no other way, no other way to worship without the word of God being the center of it. No rules, no traditions, no rituals, no works. In fact, in these verses, do you notice how God, uh, Jesus, talks a lot about these laws of theirs? He calls them traditions of men, your own traditions, traditions you handed down. But here's my favorite one. These are but rules taught by men. Slap in the face to the Pharisees who are listening to what he's saying right there. They saw their laws as holy and authoritative. Here's the truth. It is the word that defines men. Men cannot define the word. They were attempting to do that with their silly additions. So Jesus exposes these Jewish leaders, those who profess worshiping God, without genuine worship. When Jesus is alone with his disciples, he tells them another difference between self-righteous religion and God-made religion. Look at verse 14. Jesus calls the crowd to him and says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. 
After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all food's clean. Let me make a quick statement here on that last sentence. Remember, Mark wrote this for who? Gentiles, the book of Mark, mostly. And so he doesn't want these new converts to get caught up in Jewish legalistic laws. And so he wants to put in here, remember, Jesus is calling foods clean here. And this would be a reality the Jews would slowly come to understand. Okay, he went on, verse 20. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Man-made religion stops spiritual growth. The Pharisees had left this controversy hanging in the law about the fact that the disciples didn't wash their hands at that point. So Jesus comes back to the crowd. He hears their murmurs and their talking in the crowd. He boldly speaks to them. His words are liberating for the people to hear and infuriating for the leaders of the Jews to hear. He is saying real religion is demonstrated by what a person thinks and does, not in what he eats and touches. In other words, it is the heart that determines how we are doing spiritually. Sins come from within, not from without. This was a revolutionary pronouncement that came from the lips of Jesus. Shocking. All their lives, the Jews were told the things that would defile them from the outside. Foods, people, places. So it was a frightening thought to those who found their righteousness in staying away from bad things that that wasn't what made them holy inside. It was so foreign to their thinking that, remember, they got back with the disciples and the disciples said, hey, explain this to us. Because they couldn't even understand it. Their daily focus was to keep from being defiled on the outside. So much so that the sin that was wreaking havoc in their hearts, they never turned inward and dealt with it. They had found a false security about their righteousness from just staying away from things they thought were unholy. Legalism keeps us from getting to the root of the problem, which is our sin, and so it stops the process of spiritual growth and sanctification. And here's why. If you end up doing well, you keep your little list and you do it really well, then you feel proud about it. If you mess up and you don't keep your list, then you feel defeated. Neither of those responses turn us to depend on God, turn us into a relationship with God. So I think that's why Jesus listed some of these sins. Now in verse 21, you can see six sins. They're plural nouns. These are um, wicked acts, evil uh, sexual immorality, theft, murder. And probably when he's saying that, some of the people are thinking, Phew, I haven't murdered anyone yet. I am okay. So then he lists six more sins. 
a singular noun, and these are about wicked dispositions, envy, slander, arrogance. So if anybody was feeling well, they may have changed their mind. And the point Jesus is making is, woe to anyone who thinks you're good enough to get to God on your own merit. Spiritual growth occurs when we search our hearts for the sins within. Man-made religion stops our spiritual growth because we become blind to our need for the righteousness of God. Look at Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So Jesus leaves that place. He walks away from these people. He walks away from the Jewish council. I want us to envision him walking away with the critical men behind him sort of fading in the distance. And then before him, he's walking closer to another group. We realize the people he's just left are deaf and dumb and possessed by a religion of self-righteousness. And before Jesus, he's taking steps to a humble group of people, someone who is deaf and dumb and someone who's possessed. When we look at the people that Jesus will soon meet and we see that they are carrying on their outer bodies the inner sins of the hearts of the teachers of the law that Jesus is leaving behind, we realize Jesus is walking away from the Jewish religion to demonstrate what religion is really all about. And he will use these people to do it. He begins with a Gentile woman. This was a statement in itself. Talk about unclean. A woman, a Canaanite descendant, a Gentile. Look at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon is gone. This vicinity that Jesus went to was the farthest it was reported ever that Jesus traveled. He went 50 miles northwest of Capernaum. You can see that on your map if you'd like. He was at a Mediterranean seaport. Today, this would be Lebanon. But he's in Gentile territory. And it seems he enters this house. He needs rest. He needs privacy. He needs time alone with his disciples. He wanted to keep his presence a secret but it was impossible because his reputation was even that far away, even in Gentile territory. In fact, I found this really old hymn. I'll just read you a couple stanzas. 
Who is this Jesus? Why should he, the city, move so mightily? A passing stranger has he skill to move the multitude at his will? And the stirring tones of the people reply, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus, it is he who once below man's pathway trod mid pain and woe and burdened ones wherever he came. They brought out their sick and their deaf and their lame and the blind rejoiced to hear the cry, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Hear all you heavy laden come. You'll find pardon, comfort, rest and home. You wanderers. From our Father's face, return, accept his offered grace. You tempted ones, there's refuge nigh, because Jesus of Nazareth passes by. The people flock to him. And here he is, this far away, and this woman flocks to Jesus. Seems that barely does he sit down, that this woman falls at his feet. She's pleading in despair for her daughter's deliverance. Think about the difference between his last group of people. They came to Jesus unaware of their need, unaware he could meet the need. This woman came totally aware of her need, totally believed Jesus could meet her need. This woman recognized who Jesus really was. God-made religion is all about faith. When we first read the story, it's a bit disturbing about how Jesus talks to this woman. But Jesus is testing the faith of this Gentile woman. And maybe he and his disciples were lying before a meal. Remember, they didn't have tables and chairs. They laid a blanket out, put food on it. They laid on one arm, on their elbows, around the food. He's probably passing out bread. He's passing it to the men he's trying to spend time with who will take the gospel into the rest of the world when he's gone. And then this woman comes in and demands his attention. Jesus is testing her. Would she believe he could heal her daughter enough to humble herself at his feet? Would she believe he could heal her daughter enough to be persistent in her request? Would she believe he could heal her daughter enough? Even after he reminded her, my priority isn't to deliver your child. It's to deliver the children of Israel. That was the plight of the Gentiles. Look at Ephesians 2 on your verse sheet. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near By the blood of Christ. There would come a time, you and I are a result of that time, when the Gentiles would be blessed because of Jesus' ministry to the Jews. Look at Romans 15. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. But for now, he reminds her of his priority. He has come to the lost sheep of Israel. And there some of them were with Jesus around the food. Twelve of his disciples having a meal with him. And then he insinuates that the Gentile nation, they are the dogs. And I think maybe there was a dog in the room. 
that Jesus pointed to at the time. Now, here's the important thing to remember. The Jews often did call the Gentiles dogs. But the word they used was mongrel and mutt and scavenger. The word that Jesus used here meant family pet. It's actually translated to the word puppy. So we can see that both Jew and Gentile would be together in the household of God. This was a loved animal that had a place in the family. He tells them, my bread, my ministry is to feed the nation that has turned their back on the promises of God and are running around like lost sheep. He's telling her, you have no claim on me. You have no claim on my ministry. How much faith could this woman have after Jesus speaks these words to her? I think I would have just picked up my bag and just run out the back door. Never mind. I'll find a doctor. Whatever. Here's her answer. That even dogs eat the children's crumbs. Here's what she's saying. Yes, Lord, I am like this little dog in the room. Your disciples around you, they are like the nation of Israel, and they are your priority. But like this little dog is eating the crumbs off the table here, don't other people reap some of the blessings that you feed to the Jewish people? Could my daughter just have a crumb of your great healing power? What faith! Incredible. And I love how Matthew responds when he says in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus said, woman, exclamation, your faith is great, exclamation. Your request is granted, exclamation. She passed the test. Man-made religion is not about what it should be. God's is about faith in his son. Immediately, the daughter was healed Jesus honored her faith. You know how else we see her faith? I think I would have said, Jesus, could you just come with me? Kind of make sure. She says, okay, I believe it. And you know what? He never even verbally made a command that that demon would come out of that girl. It's the only place in Mark where we see something like this. From a great distance, he doesn't even speak the command that's how great her faith is. God delights in our not in our performance, but in our faith. Look at Romans 4. To the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Jesus leaves this place, goes back to the Sea of Galilee. He's in an area that's both Jew and Gentile. We don't know if the man he's about to meet is Jewish or Gentile. Look at verse 31. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down to the region of Decapolis. People brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. They begged him to place his hand on the man. And after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and said with a deep sigh, I can't say that, be open. At this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
Did you notice in this one little story, we see the opposite of man-made religion? We see what God created religion to be, true fellowship. A group of people with a faith in Jesus, caring for their friend and bringing him to him, believing God can do something in their lives, and true worship. After he healed the man, they're all talking together about God. They're looking up at God. They're celebrating who he is. It's all centered around the words and the activities of Jesus Christ. This story is about our pursuit of God and our pursuit of each other. And God delights in this because God-made religion is all about relationships. We develop a relationship with God so we might glorify him in our relationships with each other. We can be sure that the man that they brought to Jesus had not lived a happy life since he was deaf. He couldn't speak well. Or he may have had a deformity in his mouth as well. Uh, If you had an illness or deformity, you were in bad shape back then. Because the Jews believe that's a result of your own sin. Or a sin of your families that was passed down to you. Either way, it wasn't really helpful to hear that. And you usually were reduced to being a beggar and relying on people to keep you alive. You would be shamed and ignored. Jesus knew this when he met this man. He knew he needed compassion. He knew he needed to be physically touched. He knew he needed his faith increased. And so instead of just speaking his healing like he just did for this other woman, he takes him away and draws near to him, takes him away from the crowd. He doesn't only want to meet his physical needs. He wants to meet all of his needs. God-made religion is all about intimacy with God. So first, Jesus puts his fingers in his ears to let him know, I'm going to heal your ears. Then he spits and puts his his finger on his tongue to let him know, I'm going to heal your mouth. And picture that happening. This is a very intimate area, our heads, when people touch our heads. Jesus is this close to him, and I can just imagine this man's face beginning to, to change from hopelessness to hope. His heart beginning to think, maybe this is the day my life will be changed forever. It is Jesus who is growing that faith into him. And then Jesus takes his eyes off the man's face. He looks up at God. He sighs deeply. He is not just sighing for this man's condition. He is sighing for all man's condition. We are all deaf to the voice of God because of our sins. Therefore, we are unable to speak the praises and truths of God. We are enslaved by the powers of Satan on this earth. But no more for this man. Jesus commands his ears and mouth be open. He'd be enslaved no more. And because of his healing touch and command, this man was never the same again. This is God's religion. Coming to God in faith through the work of Jesus. Not through our work, through the work of Jesus. And for us, it was his death on a cross that brings us into a relationship with God. Jesus pulls us away. 
from the ways of this world. He draws us close to himself. He touches us personally. He increases our faith. He meets our need so that our lives will never be the same again. No longer are we deaf to the voice of God. No longer are we unable to speak his praises. No longer are we enslaved to the evil of this world. God delights in drawing us close to himself and meeting all our needs. Look at Ephesians 3. May you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is religion. That is real. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this truth. We praise you that you provide everything we need. We give you glory today for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.